This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. His name is Nathan Sheets, and he comes to us by way of PGM Fixed Income, uh, a giant institutional shop. Their fixed income department alone, $743 billion in fixed income assets. Um, Nathan has a unique background. He served in the Treasury Department. He was with the Federal Reserve for um, 18 or so years. He worked at City and then Prudential, and now he's been at, at PGM for a while. He is uniquely situated to comment about and analyze and discuss monetary policy, state of the economy, how best to analyze employment, inflation, what it means for interest rates, what that means for fixed income investments. Uh, it really is a fascinating conversation filled with wonky goodness. So if you are at all remotely interested in any of those things, and you know I'm interested in all of those things, you will find this to be an utterly fascinating discussion. So with no further ado, my conversation with PGM Fixed Incomes, Nathan Sheets. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest this week is Nathan Sheets. He is the chief economist and head of global macroeconomic research at PGM Fixed Income, which manages $743 billion in assets. Previously, he was the undersecretary of the Treasury for International Affairs. Uh, prior to that, he worked at U.S. Treasury Department, as well as the Federal Reserve, uh, where he served as director of the Division of International Finance. Previously, he was at Citigroup. Did I get that right or wrong? How far off was I? I, I think you nailed it. All right. Yeah. Nathan Sheets, welcome to Bloomberg. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. So you have a fascinating background. You were, Now you're currently at PGM Fixed Income. Previously, you were at Prudential, at Citigroup. Uh, the U.S. Treasury and the Federal Reserve, was was this the plan? Was this the career path you had mapped out for yourself? I think it would have been impossible to foresee uh, how things would evolve. But coming out of grad school, I did want a career in practical economics. I wanted to take the theory that I had learned and uh, apply it in a way that it might actually make a difference in in the lives of people and hence all this public service yes. at the treasury department and the federal reserve i envisioned i envisioned public service uh, my first job was uh, was at the federal reserve but uh, i'm also a, you know i think a practically minded guy at least as practical as you can be and still be an economist and i was interested in applying these kinds of principles in a, in a private sector context as well. So I couldn't have predicted the path or how things would evolve. I've been very fortunate in the opportunities that I've had, but uh, I did very much uh, want to do qualitatively these kinds of things. So, so you come out of your PhD program, you say, I'm not going to go into academia, but the next best, best thing is the Federal Reserve 
who typically hires PhDs as researchers. What what was your first job at the Fed like? The Federal Reserve, uh, for me, especially in those first years, was a vigorous postdoc. Really? It allowed me to take uh, uh, the theory, and as I said, apply it in practical ways to real-world issues. So my first assignment was to follow Russia and some of the other transition economies, Poland, Hungary, and so forth, uh, in the uh, in the mid-1990s, when they were transitioning from a centrally planned system into market-based economies. And it was it was very exciting to see the interplay between politics and policy and economics and sociology uh, through through that period. So Russia continues to struggle with corruption on its path to capitalism. Some of the outer bloc former Soviet countries are doing much better. What's that transition like and are they still heading in the right direction? What we're finding is that the countries that had some tradition of capitalism are doing quite well. Give us a few examples. Most of those those are the Central Europeans. The Mm -hmm. Czech Republic is doing very well. Slovakia is is doing well. Uh, Kind of the next rung, you've got countries like like Bulgaria and Romania, maybe not quite as well as uh, as, uh, the Czech Republic and and the Slovak Republic, but they're, they're proceeding. Uh, Russia, as you say, uh, continues to struggle. And frankly, I think history will have a judgment as to whether we had opportunities there to help the Russians more effectively than we actually did. And then many of the uh, uh, former Soviet republics continue to struggle. They have very low uh, levels of per capita income and uh, have a significant distance yet to go before they're really part of the global economy. Since your early days at the Fed, the global monetary system has really evolved, some of it certainly in response to the great financial crisis. Where do you see the future of monetary policy um, from, from your perspective at PGM today? During uh, the 25 years when I've been a professional economist, the global economic and monetary system has absorbed two very large uh, shocks or changes. I'd say the first one has been the ongoing integration of China. Mm -hmm. Uh, From a structural standpoint, uh, the uh, addition of one and a quarter uh, billion Chinese into the global economy has been uh, significant. And we're still dealing with the implications of that. Deflationary or inflationary or at times both? I think so far more deflationary or disinflationary that uh, uh, most of those folks had lower wages than Western workers. And I think that's put uh, downward pressure on wages throughout the world over the last 20 or 25 years. And the second issue you mentioned? The second major issue is the global financial crisis. So uh, China, the big structural issue, the global financial crisis is the big cyclical issue. Mm -hmm. But the the bottom line, and as it pertains to the international monetary system uh, in particular, is that notwithstanding these two big shocks, the role of the dollar and the centrality of U.S. markets has remained largely uh, intact. The dollar is still by far the world's leading reserve currency. 
U.S. financial markets are essentially unrivaled uh, in the world, that that uh, in many ways the world is more multipolar, but not so much in finance. Let's talk a little bit about your role at the Federal Reserve. How did you start? What did that evolve into? And, and how closely did you end up working with the board and its chairman? So uh, I was at the Fed for 18 years. Uh, during the entirety of the time, I was in the Division of International Finance. Uh, uh, during the first 14 of those years, I held a variety of roles. I mentioned Russia, and I was following emerging markets in Japan and so forth. During the last four uh, which started in 2007, I was the director of the International Finance Division as the global financial crisis uh, emerged and uh, had the opportunity and the responsibility to work closely with Ben Bernanke and the board and, and, and others in trying to respond to that, that terrible set of economic conditions. So there's been a lot of revisionistic history, uh, if you remember. Um, Early on in the in the financial crisis, uh, the Fed is going to be the ruin of all of us. They're going to cause hyperinflation. They're going to destroy the dollar. They should just stand down. What sort of grade do you give the Federal Reserve for the job they did both before, during, and after the financial crisis? So I'm probably a little biased. Uh, I would give the Fed, I don't know, a B for uh, pre-crisis. Mm -hmm. And I think the criticism there is not about monetary policy, which I think was about right, but the Fed didn't do what it could have done uh, in the regulatory space and allowed imbalances in the financial system. And Gromlich and, and his work for sure. E exactly, exactly. And the Fed was not unique. The Fed was not alone. But I don't see I can give the, the Fed more than a B. Now, during the heat of the crisis, uh, uh, a vigorous response was absolutely necessary. As we were sitting in the Fed's building and those terrible facts were emerging, uh, it reminded me a bit of the Jack Nicholson line, you can't handle the truth. The truth <laughs> was terrible. And uh, Bernanke and Geithner and then uh, uh, Paulson at the Treasury, they just worked through this and had a set of, a set of responses. I would give the Fed an A for that period. Uh, Lehman obviously failed and no one saw the consequences of that. Uh, I think they were going to let somebody fail at some point. That's why I don't give them an, uh, an A+. And then, frankly, since the financial crisis, I think the Fed, again, has done a pretty good job uh, keeping, keeping inflation expectations well anchored and supporting uh, uh, growth in the U.S. economy. When you look around the world, you know, we can't say things are growing gangbusters in the United States, but we're doing better than Europe and Japan and, uh, and many others. So let me push back a little bit. I don't think we're all that far apart. And in fact, I think revisionist history helps the Fed's decision with Lehman Brothers because subsequently learned that Lehman Brothers had a negative net worth of minus $150 billion. Nobody could have taken Lehman Brothers on. P.S. Dick Fold turned down Warren Buffett uh, when they needed some capital six months before they collapsed. A at what point, I just picture these meetings at the Fed, where someone says, this idiot said no to Buffett. How could we possibly bail him out? It's a, but here's where I disagree with you. <laughs> so in the period leading up to the crisis, 
we're we're totally in in sync about people like Ed Gramlich should have been listened to. He understood the regulatory lapses that were being taken advantage of by the private sector. But dear Lord, we had Federal Reserve rates um, under 2% for three years and at 1% for a year. That really kicked off a giant inflationary spiral. I think Greenspan was far too accommodative. Post 9-11, he was emotionally shaken up and did not normalize rates fast enough. I've heard people make the same complaint post-crisis. The Fed has not normalized rates fast enough. In each case, it both instances led to um, income inequality and political instability. How, how far off is, is that criticism? So uh, when I think about uh, what uh, a different path of policy rates might have looked like, and suppose you compare it to a benchmark like the Taylor Rule, the Fed was a little bit softer than the Taylor Rule. But in my mind, the misses are a couple of rate hikes and a little bit in timing. It doesn't seem like, even if we think there should have been a, a more vigorous uh, a monetary policy response, that the difference between what they did and what one might envision was large enough to explain the imbalances uh, and problems that erupted in the economy. My feeling really is that the mistakes were uh, on the regulatory side, on the governance side, in boardrooms, uh, amongst managers, amongst traders. I mean, there's a lot of blame to go around for the global financial no crisis. It. But I just don't think that the misses for monetary policy were big enough to get really on the scoreboard relative to those other mistakes. So let's let's play a counterfactual game. Uh, some people wanted the Fed to do nothing during the crisis. Hey, it's Congress's responsibility. What would the world have looked like if the Fed said, we'd like to create uh, uh, um, either QE or ZERP, but really it's up to the Senate and the House. We're going to do nothing and follow their lead. What would the world have looked like then? So uh, as it was, we saw the unemployment rate rise to 10%. Mm -hmm. I honestly believe that if the Fed had done nothing and uh, had just waited for Congress we could have seen the unemployment rate twice that high. Yeah, 20%. 20%. Not unthinkable. That would have been more like what happened during the Great Depression. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that if the Fed had been hands off, if they had said, that's not our responsibility, that uh, uh, we could have had Great Depression 2.0. Really? Uh, and as it was, as I said, it was unimaginably terrible, but it could have been even worse. Um, I don't I don't disagree with that uh, at all. Um Lots of folks got the implications of QE wrong. Very famously, a number of people had a letter in the Wall Street Journal to Ben Bernanke that said, I want to say this was 2010 or 2011, hey, your quantitative easing is, again, we're going to see hyperinflation. We're going to see the collapse of the dollar. You're destroying the economy. And in fact, none of the sort happened. Why did people get quantitative easing so long? Was it the fundamental understanding of economics? Was it bias? Or we just haven't lived through anything like that? What excuses can these folks legitimately offer for being so wrong? So uh, as the Fed pursued quantitative easing, they were really pushing out the frontier of monetary policy. And uh, Fed, the markets, and the rest of the world 
didn't know the full uh, implications of what they were doing. And I think that's what kicked off some of these concerns and anxieties that you described. But I think that uh, uh, Ben Bernanke and Janet Yellen have been very effective at having their economic dashboard. And I would say at the center of that dashboard has been inflation expectations, where if they have one objective, it's to make sure that inflation uh, expectations stay well anchored around 2%. And these various policies that the Fed pursued, quantitative easing and the like, have pushed up uh, inflation expectations some to keep them well anchored. But it, there, there hasn't been any overshooting. Let's talk a little bit about your current role. It seems like your background uh, in international finance at the Treasury and everything you've done at the Federal Reserve, pretty perfect preparation for uh, being head of research at a, at a big fixed income shop. Uh, I, I feel like I learned global macro uh, at the Fed and the Treasury. During my time at Citi, I learned how to talk to investors about markets, and I'm able to draw on that uh, background on a daily basis in my work at, uh, at PGM Fixed Income. The new dimension is being closer to the portfolio allocation process and closer to the portfolio managers and getting a better sense of the real considerations that go into that decision of should we buy or sell a given asset. So your clients are essentially all big institutions. Um, how often do you get to interact with uh, investors from these other institutions and, and what are they concerned about today? So uh, the interaction with, uh, with our clients is, is frequent uh, and intensive. Uh, I travel extensively across the United States and also globally. We have lots of clients in Europe, uh, Japan, Asia, uh, and elsewhere. In terms of issues, I would say the short-term issue that clients are the most interested in is how much steam does this expansion have left? Mm -hmm. Are we looking at a recession around the corner? It's been running for a while. We've been hearing warnings about that for two or three years. Exactly. Is this late cycle or not? Mm -hmm. uh, the longer term issue that they're the most focused on is debt and demographics. What, what does this kind of adverse cocktail uh, mean for our long-term performance. Hmm. So so let's talk about the first one, about the length of the cycle. I, I have long since complained that most economists are using the wrong data set. It's not recessions, it's post-credit crisis recoveries that they should be looking at, and, and they seem to be very different than the ordinary balance sheet recession. A explain that if you would. Yeah, so uh, uh, a decade or so ago, uh, Ken Rogoff and Carmen Reinhardt did some very interesting work where they looked at decades and decades of recessions and compared those that are driven by banking crises to those recessions that arise for other reasons. And what they found was that the recoveries from those banking crises were systematically slower and that the uh, slower pace of growth persisted for up to a decade. And when you look at the U.S. experience, it seems to be, match Reinhardt and Rogoff almost, uh, almost, almost precisely. It really is is quite extraordinary. Now, the one thing I would say that's on the other side of the ledger is that this has been slower as they predicted, but this has also been 
a uh, an extraordinarily persistent expansion, mm-hmm. where uh, by July it will be the longest uh, expansion in in U.S. history. So it's been slower, but also longer lived. So some people have given Reinhardt and Rogoff a little pushback. Um, this time is different. Eight centuries of financial folly was the book they wrote post crisis. But what a lot of folks do not recall is that in December 2007, they put out a white paper that looked at five crises. I want to say it was U.S., Mexico, Sweden, Japan, one other that escapes my my recollection. So before, like literally as the market peaked, they put out a, a paper that said says, here's what, how financial crises are different and why the recoveries are different also. Very prescient. Very few people really paid a lot of attention to that. But they were dead on, weren't they? They, they? they really were. You know, I'd say five years ago, there was a debate as to what was going on, why was growth slower. And I think all the other explanations have kind of melted away. And we just have to accept the fact this was deep. It hit our financial sector. There are significant headwinds to, to, to bank credit and lending, and probably also scars in terms of, of, of demand for credit in the corporate sector, mm-hmm. which has translated not only into somewhat tighter credit conditions than would have prevailed, but also uh, uh, corporates have been hesitant to invest, and all of that has meant a slower, slower recovery. You, you mentioned the longer-term concerns of your institutional clients are the combination of debt and demographics. I'm assuming they mean sovereign debt or is it also corporate debt? How do those two play together? I would say uh, primarily it's sovereign debt with an asterisk that the private debt in China is 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 very high. Is and it really private debt? Isn't it kind of sort of like what we did with Fannie and Freddie? Isn't there the full faith and credit of the Chinese government Behind that private debt, or am I overstating that? In the first instance, it's it's private debt. But your point, you know, doesn't the Chinese government implicitly guarantee uh, uh, most of the debt in China is absolutely right? And so maybe you just think about that as a different form of 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 public debt. Um, but then the question is, as these debt levels rise. And as we know, in the future, there are going to be uh, fewer workers and uh, fewer taxpayers. And how do these things interact with each other? What are those tax rates uh, in 20 or 30 years going to look like uh, in, order to, in order to make payment to even service this debt? Uh, and will those tax rates have adverse uh, implications for incentives to work? Uh, alternatively, will uh, will an older society be less uh, prone to 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 want to take risks and engage in entrepreneurship than a younger one? And if so, then that might mean you have uh, slower productivity growth. So there are a number of concerns where these issues of debt and and demographics uh, interact. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Nathan Sheets. He is the chief economist and head of global macroeconomic research at Pijam Fixed Income, which manages $743 billion in fixed income assets. Let's talk a little bit about the economic cycle and where we are. It's been a decade since the great financial crisis. We're still a sub 3% economy, maybe even a sub 2% economy now that the highs of the 2017 tax cuts seem to have faded. What's our growth outlook 
uh, over the next couple of years, and and why have we been so muddled over the past few years? So my baseline would be that growth this year is a little bit over 2%, and the growth next year as fiscal stimulus rolls off will be a little bit under 2%, but 2% is kind of trend. And that's not terrible, right? That's not terrible. For a mature economy? Yeah, compared, again, to many of our international competitors. Japan, Europe, That looks looks pretty good. Now, underneath it, there's a really uh, a rather deep and important question, and that is that it feels like, and the economic data suggest, the productivity growth has slowed significantly over the last, say, uh, 10 or 20 years. And, and the question is, on the one hand, we see these data pointing to uh, a slower productivity. On the other hand, it feels like the world we're living in is awash in new technologies, miniaturization and, and machine learning and artificial intelligence and genomics and on and on and on. And the big question is, when and, and if, but when do all of those those uh, developments find their way into uh, the national income accounts and into productivity growth? So, so here's my pushback on this. And, and people have told me that, well, you're in a sector that is very dependent on technology, so you're seeing productivity. But we were once a heavy manufacturing economy. We're now a service economy, which means every person in that value chain is using technology, is using computers and mobile and everything else, how much of that lack of, so therefore there's a ton of productivity growth, at least I see it. So how much of that lack of productivity gains is really a measurement issue, not a lack of productivity issue? So this is something that I've explored. I've uh, rebalanced the U.S. sectors and said, suppose that we had less services and more manufacturing, uh, more like what we had 10 or 20 years ago, what would productivity look like? And it would still be down. So it doesn't seem like it's the services rebalancing that's driving it, but that 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 could certainly certainly be part of it. I think another uh, point that's important is there is some evidence that what's happened so far is that the the leading firms in various industries have adopted a lot of these new technologies, but these new technologies have not yet diffused them way, themselves deeply into uh, various sectors. Uh, largely reflecting that investment uh, has remained kind of lackluster. That a lot of this new technology, how are you going to get it as a firm? You're going to get it by investing, and firms have been hesitant to to put their resources on the table. Let's talk a little bit about full employment and what it should look like. We've been hovering around 4% for a while. Shouldn't we be seeing greater wage gains, or is international competition tamping that down? If you had told me where the unemployment rate was, I would have guessed that uh, wage growth would be more rapid. So I think this is a this is a puzzle. It's a surprise. When I look at the economy, what do I think is going on? Yep, I think technology is probably holding down wage growth. Certainly, globalization is holding down wage growth. Uh, I think another key element, uh, as I've mentioned, is that uh, inflation expectations are well anchored. Mm -hmm. And so if you really think that inflation is only going to be 2% and your boss offers you 1.5% raise, 
you know, is it worth it to get to get agitated? And then that interacts with another key factor in the U.S. labor market is we have very little collective bargaining. I was going to ask you about that. The unions are a fraction of what they were before. What does that do to the bargaining power of of individual employees, even highly sought after STEM type employees. Yeah, so it means if you want to raise, you got to go slam your fist down uh, on your boss's desk and say, boss, I want to raise. And that's an uncomfortable conversation that if inflation was taking off, Mm -hmm. uh, I think people would probably feel more comfortable having it. Now, I'd say the good news for American workers is we are seeing some acceleration. Wage gains are now over 3%, which is less than I would have expected, but uh, it's a little bit higher. And more importantly, we're also starting to see increased churn in the labor market. So people are leaving jobs and there are lots of jobs posted. And the way you get a raise in the U.S. is to get an outside offer. Right. And then you go to your boss and say, boss, I want more money. And the guy across the street is giving me a 10% raise. Huh. Quite, quite interesting. So here we are. Uh, we're running bigger deficits than we ever had. At this point, which is a bigger driver of the economy? Is it the fiscal policy or is it monetary policy? So I'll still give the nod uh, to monetary policy as as being more important, but fiscal is increasingly uh, giving it a run for its money, so mm-hmm. to speak. Uh, in the short term, we've seen the power of fiscal policy in providing stimulus and 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 supporting growth. In the long run, we have these very difficult issues of debt and deficits and how to manage those and what the implied tax rates are going to be. So uh, fiscal policy is becoming uh, increasingly important. And it really strikes me as we think of these two pillars of macro policy, how different they are in the way they're formulated. You have technocrats doing monetary policy, and you have a very messy political process uh, with, with, with fiscal. You're, you're being too kind. <laughs> so um, let's talk about what's been in the news uh, a ton lately. Monetary theory has been making the rounds that essentially says, you know, you can run deficits. It's not the worst thing in the world. Look at Japan. Their demographics are terrible. They're running giant deficits relative to GDP, and their economy is moving along just fine. How how do you respond to those claims? So uh, my feeling is that uh, modern monetary theory is dangerous, Mm -hmm. but also, and this is why it's particularly dangerous, is there is a grain of truth in it. We don't know what the limits are as to how much debt the United right. States as a reserve currency can have. As you say, Japan has very high levels uh, of public debt. 200% relative to GDP, o- yes, right? Or over, more. Over 200% of GDP. Uh, and is there a good economic case that some economists have recently made when rates are very low to borrow and and do infrastructure sure. that might have very high rates of return? So all of those things are true. But at the same time, to say there's really no constraints on fiscal policy, uh, I consider it just not prudent. It's driving too close to the edge of the cliff. We don't know exactly where that edge is, but I sure don't want to find out. See, what, what you're supposed to do is lie and say these tax cuts will pay for themselves and then run giant deficits. And by the time people figure it out, you've already retired to the Bahamas and- you're you're out of office. That that I think is the key uh, 
the key secret there. Um, but there is some truth to the fact that whether you're looking at monetary theory from the left or the right, and the same with fiscal theory, uh, neither party, neither ideological wing um, has a monopoly on not running deficits. They both seem to run deficits, although I have to give the Clinton administration a little credit for um, actually running a surplus one year, but the Obama administration and the Bush administration, they and now the Trump administration, they've all been running deficits. Yes. And I think, the, I think the point here is the, the right hates taxes, the left loves spending, and guess what? Both of those mean uh, somewhat higher deficits. Uh, where do we get fiscal restraint? We get fiscal restraint from the center. And uh, the political center, especially at present, is very hollowed out. Mm -hmm. so, so let's talk a little bit about the center in terms of the nexus between the markets and the economy. Because the old joke is um, economists have predicted nine of the previous four recessions. But in reality, when the economy begins to slow and when profits begin to get curtailed, you know, the market just happens to pick it up a little faster than the economic data because it's reported so much sooner. What What's that relationship between economics and, and equity prices? So there's all sorts of theory about uh, how – uh, equity prices or current expected value of future profits. And, uh, you know, all of those things are important, what we're expecting uh, for, for profitability, what we're expecting for rates, what we're expecting for growth. But the mapping is, is a very, very noisy one. Uh, I'd love to be able to say, uh, if you give me the economy, I know the markets, but uh, I'd also need to know uh, sentiment uh, and a lot of sociological and psychological elements. Uh, so I would say macro is part of the story, but the best market commentators, the best strategists deeply understand something in addition to the macro theory. So you you touched uh, on sentiment there. You teed up my next question perfectly. How does sentiment vary over the course of a market cycle? How important are things like small business sentiment, consumer sentiment? Which does that drive the economy or does the economy drive sentiment? I think that the answer is both. That as sentiment uh, 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 deteriorates, that drags down the economy, but then as the economy gets worse, sentiment will respond to that. So it's very much a, uh, a symbiotic, self-reinforcing uh, kind of relationship. Uh, but uh, you know, if you press me, what's the first mover? I think sentiment typically moves before the economic data. We have been speaking with Nathan Sheets. He is the chief economist at PGM Fixed Income. If you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure to come back for the podcast extras where we keep the tape rolling and continue discussing all things macro. You can find that wherever finer podcasts are sold, Apple iTunes, Stitcher, Overcast, Bloomberg.com. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at Bloomberg.net. Check out my daily column on Bloomberg.com slash opinion. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.
Welcome to the podcast. Nathan, thank you so much for doing this. I'm really enjoying this conversation. You are right in the wonky sweet spot of of some of my favorite peeves. I want to circle back to the financial crisis and and some of the issues related to that, but you were discussing um, wages not going up as fast as anyone would have suspected uh, relative to full employment, and I have a theory I want to run by you. Employees have seen substantial wage gains, but they're not seeing it in dollars. They're seeing it in giant increases in healthcare costs, going up eight, nine, ten percent a year. If you're paying for healthcare as an employer, and whatever it is, five or ten percent, maybe even more for some employees of, of the healthcare is one of the biggest inflationary inputs we see. It, how much of that is? dollars that otherwise might have gone to salary increases? Uh, I think the answer to that is uh, is is substantial uh, amount could have gone into salary increases. And as you say, for uh, many employees, health care is a very substantial part uh, of their overall compensation. Now, we do have broader measures of compensation that would include health care and other benefits. And they also have been going up somewhat more slowly than we would have expected. So uh, very much true that it's an enormous cost, an enormous source of, of, of overhead for U.S. firms that makes it less attractive to hire in the United States. But that alone doesn't explain this uh, puzzle as to why wage growth hasn't uh, I'm, been I'm faster. looking at that from a competitive standpoint of yes. U.S. manufacturers versus Germany, U.S. manufacturers versus Japan. Given we what are there like three or four hundred Democratic people in the uh, presidential race already, <laughs> and almost all of them are talking about some variation of universal health care, I would think the corporate sector would jump all over this and say, "Please take this off our backs. Why is it our responsibility?" And I don't necessarily agree with this, but how has corporate America evolved? to be responsible for healthcare and not the government. It seems so bizarre. It's it's an interesting historical feature of the way our labor market has evolved. And as you said, in many other major economies in Europe and in Canada and elsewhere, uh, it's dealt with very differently. Uh, And it it is a drag uh, on on uh, wages and uh, a responsibility that the corporate sector bears. And I think you're right. Uh, for someone to come and say, don't worry about that, uh, would be very welcome. Now, the flip side of that is it means the burden of paying for it gets, gets transferred. And so the German corporates uh, don't have to deal with it, but the overall level of taxation in Germany is much higher, so the government is larger relative to GDP. No, no free lunch. That's saying. right. There's a piper to be paid someplace. Mm-hmm. Makes a lot of sense. One would wonder um, if salary were higher and corporate earnings were higher, but the tax burden would be higher as well. Exactly. Could, could be kind of intriguing. So, so let's bring it back to the pre-financial crisis era. And I, I didn't want to push back too much during the broadcast portion, but I have to push back on. And some of this is clearly with the benefit of hindsight, but I could go back and look at what I was writing in 01, 02, 03, and I could see, gee, these rates seem to be really low. Greenspan seems to be wildly overreacting to both the mild... To both the mild 
post-dot-com recession, all things considered, it wasn't that bad. And towards the end of that recession, September 11th happened, and there that also seemed to engender a pretty substantial overreaction in terms of monetary policy. I look at everything that was priced in either credit or dollars as just spiraling up. Gold went from 400 to over 1,000. Home prices doubled in some parts of the country. Um, all the commodities uh, spiraled up. The dollar actually did um, really take a, a pretty healthy whack. It, it suffered. So ha- you and I completely agree that the Fed missed their opportunity in terms of acting as a regulator for the banking industry. But how much of that big spiral can trace its way back to 1% rates under Greenspan? So I think that, uh, say, the dot-com recession compared to what we had uh, at the time uh, of the Great Recession later in that decade, the dot-com recession did seem pretty mild. But when we were living through it, I don't think any of us would have described it that way. Especially with NASDAQ falling 80% from exactly. peak to trough. Was and the he- Fed did respond to that. And when 911 broke out, uh, I remember being inside the building, people were very concerned about what that might mean for sentiment, which we've talked At about. the Fed. And the economy, exactly. People inside the Fed. So- uh, there were reactions to that. And then I think Greenspan was also worried about trying to make sure that inflation expectations stayed anchored and didn't start to fall. But your comments evoke another kind of criticism uh, of the Fed's policies through that period, and that is how vigorous should monetary policy be in responding to perceived imbalances in financial markets? And uh, the Greenspan Fed was loath uh, to do that. And at the time, the argument was, we don't know where the tops are. We don't know what's a bubble. And instead of trying to kill things preemptively, it's better to clean them up uh, after the fact. We learned that central banks do need to think hard about financial stability and uh, whether asset markets are overvalued. And I think that uh, many central banks uh, now have an implicit mandate. It's not part of their explicit uh, responsibilities, but an implicit mandate to ensure financial stability. And they spend a lot of resources doing that now. So it's not just full employment and keeping inflation contained. It's, oh, and now you guys are responsible for the markets. So I always push back to the Greenspan defense on we are loath to intervene in the markets because of all people Greenspan probably intervened in the markets more than any Fed chair in memory. So forget that the 87 crash happened right after he began. It's like every new Fed chief gets a baptism of fire. And he did what he always has does is he cut rates. But I recall very specifically when doing some research for Bailout Nation, it was either in 90 or 91, I'm not positive, early 90s, In between meetings, Greenspan, without the Board of Governors, lowered rates on his own in response to something going on in the markets. And the board was so offended that they clipped his wings and prevented that from happening. They passed a rule that said the Fed chief can only raise or lower rates with the approval of the board. So I've heard that argument that, well, Greenspan was loath to do it, except when he did it, and he did it quite frequently. Am I wildly off? Am I just a Greenspan basher? Or is that a fair criticism? 
Well, I think that there were uh, some instances like '87 uh, and after 911, where uh, the Federal Reserve saw risks to market functioning and the capacity of markets to operate. And in response to that, the Fed did respond uh, very, very vigorously. Now that said, uh, you know, the Fed uh, was aware of what was happening in financial markets. And I think the, what I should say precisely is that the Fed under Greenspan was, was hesitant to try to say a given market is in a bubble, let's go and prick that bubble. That's really the core of the Greenspan doctrine. We don't know a bubble. We're not sure. We could be surprised. We don't have good tools to do it. Let's do it on the other side. And I do think that's been roundly roundly rejected at this point by central banks. Hmm. Quite quite fascinating. The the other issue that has come up uh, about the Federal Reserve by the way, I think that last issue about um, rates being too low too long, here's my hindsight bias, what I'm about to say, and I will admit this is hindsight bias. At the time, I flagged low, those ultra-low rates as inflationary. With the benefit of hindsight, I wish the Fed would have said, either post 9-11 or some other one-off emergency, hey, this is an emergency. We are for six months going to take rates down I think they cut rates 50 basis points. We're going to implement a 50 basis point uh, rate cut, and in six months, half of it will go away, and in, and in nine months, the other half of it will go away. So that there would have prevented that, well, we're afraid there were no expectations of, of a raise, and it's going to be problematic. If it would have been built into this is an emergency action, but it will automatically unwind, I think they would have been better off. Again, pure hindsight bias. Yeah, that. and and I think that that is a very creative form of of forward guidance, which uh, the Fed has experimented, particularly under Bernanke, mm-hmm. experimented with a lot of different forms of forward guidance. Uh, typically, it's been more of the form we'll keep rates where they are right. and not pre-committing to future rate hikes. But uh, it wouldn't surprise me at some point in the future to see some central bank around the world implement uh, uh, a policy that had the kind of forward guidance you just described. Look, we're responding to what we believe is an extraordinary circumstance. We expect that it's going to go away. And uh, as our expectations are confirmed, then uh, we very well may be hiking rates. The, the Ritholtz doctrine. Look, look like for it, it at like an it. emerging uh, market central bank Good stuff. In, in the future. So you bring up Bernanke and what he did uh, during his tenure as chairman. So, I'm not in this camp, but some people have criticized him as too transparent. Back in the early days, you never knew what the Fed did. You would see the reaction in the bond market. Oh, bonds are ticking up. The Fed might have raised rates. They did have a meeting this week. Has the Federal Reserve become too transparent? This is this is a very important question, and its its corollary is: uh, Does the Fed talk too much? And a uh, concrete question is. you know, through every FOMC cycle, we hear a variety of voices from Federal Reserve policymakers. All the Reserve Bank presidents uh, are talking, various members of the board, uh, and so forth. And does that give markets more information? Does that allow investors to make better decisions and better understand what the Federal Reserve's uh, going to do? And if you press me, I guess I'd say on balance, yes. 
that transparency and and perspectives are helpful, but it's also important that the Fed not talk so much that it's saying things it's not really sure about. Right. What people want to hear from the Fed is what is its reaction function, meaning as various economic events evolve, how is it going to respond? What does it expect about the future? And I think this is one of the risks with having press conferences after every meeting, that there may be times when Jay Powell is going to have to say something mm-hmm. just because the question is asked, not because it's part of his uh, preferred proactive communication strategy. Huh. Quite quite interesting. The the whole idea of we're data driven and we're gonna wait and see what the economic data looks like, is that a fair approach or is that still too squishy and, and ambiguous? So I think that that is a very fair approach. I think more or less that's what central banks have been saying for for generations. The the problem with it is markets yearn for something more concrete. And if the Fed says, you know, we'll just see where the data take us, then the next question is, well, where do you think the data are going to take us? And uh, so markets, markets are going to want more. But ultimately, the Fed does have to be data dependent. That even if they say, you know, we're going to be flat, Mm-hmm. If ultimately the economy surprises on the upside, they're going to have to hike. And if the economy surprises on the downside, they're going to have to cut. And for them not to act in the future because of something they said in the past would, I think, uh, not be not not be good policy. So, so let's talk about the post-crisis era. I was surprised at at lower for longer. I was surprised at at the length of time that we seem to have been on emergency footing. How fast should the Fed return to a more normalized rate regime? Are we there yet? Are we halfway there yet? Um, Some people have said they're behind the curve. The president is saying they're choking off economic expansion. Where where are we, 2.5%? By by any measure, that's still fairly accommodative, isn't it? So I think the Fed has uh, has handled uh, the rate hikes quite skillfully. This has been perhaps the slowest tightening cycle in the history of central banking. Mm-hmm. We've moved uh, we've moved a quarter percentage point every quarter. So one percentage point uh, a year. Uh, back in the days of Greenspan, they were going 25 basis points every meeting, and they thought they had go- were going as slow as they could. That's still twice as fast. So the Fed has gone has gone very gradually, and they're now at a place where, you know, they think neutral is two and a half, three, something like that, where they're on the lip of 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 a neutral policy. And that gives them the luxury of being able to watch and wait and see how some of these various risks uh, unfold. Does China do better? Does Europe pick up? What happens with the trade war uh, and so forth? So if we look at inflation today, also about two, two and a half percent, is that the, there are a million economic inputs, but is that you know, the tutti di capo, is that the one that really matters? And if inflation stays around 2%, the Fed doesn't feel any urgency 
to move off of these low rates? I think uh, in this circumstance with rates, uh, policy rates around two and a half percent, that they probably are going to need to see uh, inflation at or probably a little bit above two percent before they seriously start thinking about more rate hikes. The flip side is I think the other variable that they're going to continue to watch closely is the unemployment rate. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that as long as the labor market uh, looks looks tight and the unemployment rate is 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 falling, they're not going to think that they need to they need to uh, cut rates either. I think it would require an increase, a marked increase in the unemployment rate before the Fed would throw it into reverse. Now, now we've seen some modest increases in the unemployment rate, but for the good reason, meaning people who had left the labor force were coming back into it and suddenly there's more people in that pool and it look it's not that people are losing their jobs it's that more people are looking for their jobs obviously the fed understands that nuance are we going to continue to pull or or let me rephrase that what's it going to take to continue pulling more and more of these discouraged workers back into the labor pool. The uh, increase in labor force participation that we've seen of late is an extremely constructive uh, development. There's been more slack on the edges of the labor market than I would have expected and than most economists uh, would have expected. And I think what it's going to take to for this process to continue is for the U.S. economy to continue to grow at a solid pace and for us to see some further upside pressure on wages. As we see that additional, uh, those additional wage gains, that's going to be very attractive to workers on the sidelines and getting them back in the labor force. And once these folks are back in the labor force, they're developing skills and abilities. They're going to help drive the economy uh, through the years ahead. So, so let me wax wonky a little bit. You brought up the Taylor Rule earlier. Has the Taylor Rule lost its power? Is it is it expired? And and explain it before uh, before we go too far into the weeds. So the the Taylor Rule uh, basically says that in setting monetary policy, the Federal Reserve should look at the unemployment rate relative to some. Uh, uh, equilibrium or some uh, trend rate of unemployment. And it should also look at the inflation rate relative to its 2% target. Uh, and if, if, uh, if inflation is low and unemployment is high, then the Taylor rule would suggest you should have a very easy uh, monetary policy. And I do think it's fair to say that uh, many central banks around the world have pursued policies in recent years that are much softer than what the Taylor Rule would suggest. But even so, I think if you talk to those central bankers that say, yeah, we're not really following the Taylor Rule right now, but we like having it as a, a point of departure, mm. it really gets into this powerful question of how far should you push theory? And it's, it's good as a theoretical construct but then from there, we realize that there are a number of headwinds and other challenges our economies face that explain why we should be off it. But it's a good benchmark still. Every cycle is different. If you try and apply the same rules to different cycles, you may not be happy with the results. And that's the problem in economics is in, in thinking about our recommendations, we are driven by what the data say, but the data only cover the past. 
which then makes trying to figure out what the next one is going to look like really hard. It says, Yogi Berra said, uh, forecasting is really hard, especially when it's about the future. <laughs> that summarizes my life as an economist. Per- perfect uh, way to sum it up. So I know I only have you for a, a, a finite amount of time, and I want to get to my favorite questions that I ask um, every guest. Let's, let's start with uh, the first one. Tell us the most important thing that people don't know about your background. So I would say uh, it's that I just kind of, uh, of wandered my way uh, into economics and uh, international economics. Uh, when I was in college, I couldn't decide whether I was going to be a lawyer or go into business or be an economist. I took all the exams, all the interest exams, and finally decided, well, I'll do economics. And then in grad school, uh, didn't know what I wanted to do, kind of looked around. And international economics was an area where the faculty uh, at MIT was great, uh, but there weren't very many students my year. Mm-hmm. So I went there because I said, oh, I'll have less competition getting a job. And uh, everything everything worked out well. I was very, very fortunate to fall into international, which I really have enjoyed. Mm-hmm. And, and MIT's economics department is just a murderer's row of rock stars when you were there who were some of the the names that that you got to work with either as mentors or just professors the the three key folks that i interacted with were stan fisher uh, rudy dornbush who passed away some years ago but was really big in thinking about how do we apply economics in the real world and olivier blanchard who is extremely brilliant and fertile mind and uh every time i talked to him i learned something new uh, any other mentors you want to mention who helped guide either your academic or professional career? Well, when I arrived at the Federal Reserve, I'd say two folks that had a big impact on me. One was uh, a Federal Reserve governor who uh, uh, your listeners have probably heard of named Larry Meyer. Sure. Who Larry was was interested in taking a very empirical view and using that to analyze where uh, the global economy was headed. And uh, another chap who was my boss, his name was Ted Truman. And uh, Ted was intense and focused on how do we get the right answer and best serve policymakers. So I'd say those two uh, individuals had a big impact on my early career. So you now work in a, at PGM Fixed Income, which is a giant bond shop. What investors influenced your way of looking at the world of interest rates and uh, inflation and everything else that goes into investing. I would say that the investors that are having the the most impact uh, on my perspectives are frankly the ones that I'm working with at, uh, now. And uh, uh, a number of these folks are what I would describe them as is very balanced in their worldviews. They're getting all the information they can and they're responding to it in a way said, okay, we'll move a little here. Relative value is a little more attractive. We're going to move there. They're never off balance. They're responding to what the world's uh, uh, throwing at them and, uh, and seeking uh, the best returns, always, always in comparing one asset to the other. So let's talk about books. What are some of your favorite books, fiction, nonfiction, economics related or not, what do, what do you like to read? Well, I am a heavy reader of biographies. I really uh, enjoy uh, 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 learning what 
others have gone through in their lives, in their in their in their career paths and the like. Uh, I'd say along those lines, my uh, favorite writer is is probably Ron Chernow, uh-huh. who's written some absolutely brilliant uh, economic biographies. Uh, and I think his very, very best was his biography on uh, Alexander Hamilton, which as you read it, it really is quite extraordinary, the challenges that Hamilton was facing in helping Washington and others set up the Republic and how we face in various ways, very similar uh, challenges. And I think the Chernow just brings all of that to life and makes it very rich and fertile in helping us think, well, how, how, would, how would Hamilton respond to a global financial crisis? How would Hamilton have responded to a European debt crisis? Plus writing the whole thing in hip-hop lyrics. That was really that, challenging. That, that was the extra mile. But, but true story, that's where Lin-Manuel Miranda discovered Hamilton was Chernow's book. It's an astonishing, that book has astonishing legs. Um, Give us some other uh, books that you enjoy. So I would say uh, just uh, continuing, I've read uh, uh, wonderful biographies of uh, Woodrow Wilson, Mm -hmm. uh, a progressive, and and notably a progressive who is arguing for free trade because it would bring down prices for the masses. Huh. It's really extraordinary the way the the free trade debate has evolved over the last hundred years. Or, or devolved, as the case may be. Uh, I've read, uh, continuing in that uh, kind of time in history, love to read about Teddy Roosevelt. Mm-hmm. Brilliant, brilliant uh, individual, but in addition, really focused on getting things done. Who, who wrote the Roosevelt bio? Because there are a ton of them. Which one did you like? You nailed me. <laughs> I'm not re- looking to. I don't remember. So email it to me, and I'll I'll add it to Great. the info on this. Great, because there there are the problem with a lot of these bios. Yes, uh, is that there are so many of them. Yes, a friend recommended a Genghis Khan bio. He's, this book is great, yes. so I ordered it on Amazon. Yeah, and I say to him, "This is was a great book. Thanks for recommending it." And he looks at the book. He goes, "No, no, that's the wrong one." I'm like, dude, uh, uh, a thousand pages of Genghis Khan. I'm good. Yeah, I don't need to read the uh, second one. Have you gotten around to reading McCullough's uh, Wright Brothers book? No, I thought about it though. I He's read great. it on vacation. Yes, it was just fascinating. Like you have no idea, or let me rephrase that: I had no idea who they were and how they became effectively the inventors of flight. It was. If you like biographies, yeah, yeah, yeah. especially you know early 20th century, yeah. it's fascinating. They, I was at Kitty Hawk last summer. Get out of here. Yeah, it's really an interesting so place. You they can see where they flew the thing. They weren't from Kitty Hawk. Right, right. Orville had from tagged- from like Ohio. Right, right that's yeah. right. And they had tagged somebody in the National Weather Service yeah. to say, where are their steady winds of 10 to 15 miles an hour, preferably not too rocky? And they gave him a couple of things, and and Kitty Hawk checked out as so. Now you could get to Kitty Hawk really easily. Yeah. Back then, right, it right. was an ordeal. It was a train, and then a boat, and then a a, a giant trek to get there. Uh, if you like bio- biographies, you're going to love okay. this book. Okay, I'll, I'll pick that, that one. That's my my recommendation. I can give you other you. books too. Now, give me one more. Okay, let me let me give you another one. I think one of the most readable and interesting books that I've been exposed to is Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell. Sure. And that 
That book has a very interesting argument in it, which resonates with me now because my son is going through the college admission process, and he shows where the Nobel Prizes in chemistry got their undergrad degrees. Uh And they are all solid institutions, but they all didn't go to MIT or Princeton. It is all over the map. And Gladwell then makes the argument that, that had they all gone to MIT then most of them would not be Nobel laureates in chemistry, that there would have been someone else or someone's else in their, uh, in their introductory and early training that would have been better huh. at chemistry, and it would have discouraged them in their career, in their trajectory of ultimately great creativity. So that uh, you know, where you go to school uh, matters, but what really matters is how much you work once you're there. Makes perfect sense to me. Um, So let's talk a little bit about a time you failed and what you learned from the experience. So uh, this uh, is my time uh, at the U.S. Treasury. I was part of the uh, team on the administration that was managing uh, U.S. policy regarding China's proposed Asian Infrastructure and Investment Bank, the AIIB. Mm -hmm. Uh, We had concerns about this institution that it would not pursue good standards in its lending. And consistent with that, we expressed our concerns and lack of enthusiasm uh, to countries across the world. But as you know, uh, the Brits, the UK, Uh, joined uh, the AIIB, and soon thereafter, dozens of other countries joined. What do I learn from from this? I think I learned two things. One uh, important policy implication is China's rise is going to happen. Right. There really is not a lot that we can do about it. We can slow it down, or we can support them and have it accelerated, but they're going to rise. And I think the big question is, once they've risen, are they going to look at, at us as being their friend uh, or their foe? Secondly, and this may be more on a personal basis, but uh, I learned from that experience, when you have a message, it's got to be simple. Mm-hmm. And we had, a, we had a very sophisticated position that I think had a lot of analytical rigor associated with it, but I needed a thousand words to explain it. Too nuanced for, for most, that. Most positions, when you go through life, you need to be able to put them on a bumper sticker. Really? If, it, if, it's, if it's more complicated than that, people's eyes start to gla- glaze over. You've got to boil it down. Even in complex diplomatic trade negotiations, you still have to dumb it down to a bumper sticker. I think you got I think you got to get it on a bumper sticker. So this administration has, you know, and I think they probably, they have answered the question, what are we trying to achieve? We're trying to break down barriers in China and make it fairer for U.S. firms uh, to, to operate there. So if you could go back in time and rejigger your message back when you were at Treasury, what would that look like if it was reduced to a bumper sticker? Well, I think we would have had to do uh, further, uh, further uh, argumentation inside the administration and say, are we for it or are we against it? Because we were, we were closer to being against it. It was perceived as being fully against it, but we really weren't. But we'd have to decide, are we for it or against it? And I think probably a clean position would have been, look, for a number of reasons, we're not going to join. Mainly political reasons, we're not going to join. 
We have these concerns, but you make your own decision. Huh. That would have been a cleaner position. Quite interesting. So what do you do for fun? What do you do to stay mentally or physically active when you're outside of the office? So uh, for fun, I have four kids mm-hmm. that uh, keep me keep me fully engaged and, and energized. Uh, I'm also uh, very active in my church congregation. And uh, uh, in terms of uh, staying physically fit, uh, about a year ago, I came to the conclusion that I needed to do more in that department. Mm-hmm. And since I've spent a lot of time on the treadmill, which actually I've come to enjoy and found to be a place where I can reflect uh, and and unwind. Hmm. Quite interesting. So if a millennial or um, a recent college grad came to you and said they were interested in a career in um, economics or finance, what sort of advice would you give them? My my number one uh, piece of advice is find something that you are passionate about. Mm-hmm. When I talk to to graduates and people early in their careers, sometimes I feel like they're trying to turn themselves into the perfect candidate, uh-huh. the candidate that everyone will want to hire. That's not what I want to see. I want them to come in and tell me, this is what I really care about. And uh, if they really care about it, if they're passionate about it, then they're going to be successful. In these, in these, these, these careers, particularly in finance and, and policy, there are going to be a lot of weekends. There are going to be a lot of late nights. And if you don't fundamentally love what you're doing, it's going to uh, drive you to distraction. You're not going to be as effective. Find what you love and what you care about. And our final question, what is it that you know today about macroeconomics, monetary policy, fixed income investing that you wish you knew 30 years or so ago when you were first getting started? So I, I think that the, uh, the, the biggest thing I've learned is as one goes through these cycles, and this is true as an investor, uh, it's true as a policymaker, you have to have faith in your instincts. Mm-hmm. You know, at the end of the day, all the analytics are great. Bring them to bear. But I think ultimately, at the end of the day, we have to we have to trust our guts and trust our instincts. Quite quite intriguing. We have been speaking with Nathan Sheets. He is the chief economist at PGM Fixed Income. If you enjoyed this conversation, well, look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes, and you could see any of the other 239 such prior conversations that we've had. Um, you can find that Apple iTunes, Overcast, Stitcher, Bloomberg.com, wherever your finer podcasts are located. Uh, we love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. Please go to Apple iTunes and give us a delightful five-star review. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack staff that helps put this conversation together each week. Taylor Riggs is our booker. Atika Valbrun is our project manager. Michael Batnick is our head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Bloomberg Radio.